All right, let's turn to our scripture reading for this morning. We're looking at Revelation chapter 3, uh, verse 14 to 22. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 to 22. Let's give our attentive hearing to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, calling us to, to worship you and to hear you so that we may delight in what we hear and find true satisfaction in our souls. We pray, God, uh, no matter where we are coming from, what place, uh, help us to realize this one thing that, Lord, you who made us for yourself, uh, only you uh, can meet our deepest longings and satisfy us in our hearts. We ask that you reveal this to us through your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're continuing in our series in the book of Revelation, uh, going through it uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we're hitting now the the seventh and final letter to the churches in Asia Minor. And it's the letter uh, written to the the Christians in Laodicea. Uh, Laodicea was an interesting city, uh, because it was known for its its being the center of banking uh, in that region of Asia Minor. It was a powerful banking center uh, in that area, and it did not have to have a busy commercial sort of way of life. For its just sheer amount of wealth, it was able to sustain itself. Uh, one fascinating historical fact about the city is that when they suffered the major devastating earthquake in AD 60, Unlike the church in Philadelphia and the city of Philadelphia that received uh, federal aid, basically, from, from the emperor, they said, no thanks. <laughs> they said, uh, keep calm and carry on because we have all the money in the world to rebuild our city on our own. And the Roman historian Tacitus uh, recorded this saying, in the same year, Laodicea, one of the famous Asiatic cities, was laid in ruins by the earthquake, but recovered by its own resources without assistance from ourselves, ourselves meaning 
the Roman Empire. This was a place, Laodicea was a city where you, had, you really had all the money that you could spend and then some. A, a worry-free life. You could be completely demolished by an earthquake and you're confident. We have all the resources to rebuild ourselves, right? It, money was the, the solid rock on which they stood when all other ground was literally sinking sand. And that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That sounds like they're, they're doing really good for themselves. What, what could be wrong uh, with that? Well, if uh, money is the solid rock on which you stand, Christ is not. If money is the solid rock on which you stand, then Christ isn't. It's interesting because this is one of the, this is the one church uh, that Jesus writes to that contains absolutely nothing positive in the letter. Um, at least with Sardis, right, and they had a pretty devastating verdict, there were a few, a few saints remaining in the church who did not defile their garments, remember that? In Laodicea, there's just an outright rebuke for the entire church. Okay, what was their problem? What was the diagnosis, in other words? Um, and and it wasn't any, any um, uh, f- worship of, of false gods, Greco-Roman gods, or, or the worship of Caesar. It wasn't sexual immorality. It wasn't any of these things. It wasn't hating one another. It wasn't being, being persecuted by the Romans or the Jews. What was the problem? And um, what is the cure to that problem? And, and maybe more basically and fundamentally, why should you care? Why, why does this matter? Okay. And I want to start sort of going backwards and, and start with that last question first, why you should care? Because that will hopefully shed light on uh, what, what the problem was and, and then hopefully make us run for the cure. Okay. So uh, point number one, why you should care. Point number two, what was the problem? And number three, what is the cure? Okay, these three. All right, why you should care. Uh, in short... It's because of the amen. We can't skip over this word here because it's such a big word. Uh, it's a word that you hear all the time and you say all the time, but we don't always realize what we're saying when we say this. Um, we should care about all this in this letter because these are the words of the amen. Uh, verse 14 says, The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, uh, the beginning of God's creation. Um, amen is Greek for true or true indeed. Um, it's the most solemn and sacred way of saying this is the absolute truth. This is the supreme truth. Uh, it sort of reminds me of the way the, the Mandalorian says, this is the way. Uh, whenever he says that, you just kind of get a sense of, there is no other way. <laughs> that, that is the way. Because it says, he says this in such a solemn and sacred way. Uh, amen is like that. This is the way. This is the truth. There can be no other. Right? This is the supreme truth. It's, it's the most significant and important truth you'll ever encounter in your life. That's the amen. Another way to think of it is it's the all-controlling truth. 
what you perceive and receive as amen is the, is the, the, the one truth that controls all lesser truths in your life. And I know, that that can, I know that that can sound like a religious concept where, okay, you have this indoctrination from top down. You have this idea of God and, or scripture, and then everything else is you're sort of submissive to that. Well, uh, turns out that's actually not a religious, it's, this is not a religious phenomenon, but a human phenomenon. We all, we all have some truth we consider to be supreme and from there we go about discerning all lesser truth and just to give you an example i'm going to ask you to put your thinking caps on and follow this train of thought with me here and show i want to show you how this is true even in secular atheism uh, david hume uh, was an atheist philosopher who, who argued that because there's no god because there is no god uh, we should not think that the scientific laws the laws of nature are uniform and consistent and permanent. Uh, and just because the sun has been rising yesterday and the day before doesn't mean it will rise tomorrow, right? That kind of uniformity of nature, you can't assume because no one is behind those, the laws and holding the laws together. And that's what you have to believe in the godless universe. Um, the, the laws of nature are, are arbitrary. So Hume's atheism controlled his view of scientific truth, his view of empirical truth, what he perceives about nature. Friedrich Nietzsche was another atheist philosopher who argued that because there is no God, there is no good or evil. There's, uh, there's no justice, true justice in the world because there's no afterlife. People get away with injustices all the time. And if there's no accountability in the afterlife, there is no such thing as justice and good and evil are made up concepts. And they're made up by powerful people to control the weak. Uh, even things like racism and bigotry, murder, even genocide, these aren't morally evil, wrong things. You're only conditioned by powerful people to think that way, to, to dislike these things so they, they keep their control over you. So, so Nietzsche's atheism as a supreme truth controlled how he views moral truths. Uh, one more example, Sam Harris is, is currently one of the most influential atheist thinkers alive today. He's a neuroscientist and atheist, and he argues that given that there's no God and there's no human soul, there's no such thing as free will. Free will is a made-up concept. Uh, we're just animals and reacting according to the chemical reactions in our brain. We're atoms bouncing around. That's all we are. So experiences like falling in love or, or caring for someone, being kind to someone. These aren't choices we make that are meaningful because we don't have free will. These are accidental happenings that produce certain chemicals in our brains that make us feel good about what's happening. But free will is an illusion because the human soul doesn't exist and because that's because God does not exist. So, so Harris's atheism as supreme truth controls his view of love and relationships. Here's, what, here's my point. Uh, you have as one controlling truth, there is no God. And see how that controls your view of science, morality, and human relationships. It is not true that there, this is a religious thing. You believe in God and it controls everything you do. You're so brainwashed. You're so indoctrinated. You're so naive. It's not true. This is how we all operate. We all have some controlling truth, and it, and it determines everything else we see in life.
coming back to the text today, here's why this matters. Jesus is saying to the church, hey church, do you know what your supreme truth is? What your all-controlling truth ought to be? In other words, uh, your great amen, do you know what that is? Or have you forgotten what that is? And turns out it is not a what, it is a who. Do you know who, who this amen is for you? It's Jesus here asking us something that we often get asked during worship, and that is, Christians, what do you believe? What do you say amen to, ultimately? And what do you submit yourself to, ultimately? What is your confession of of your faith? And here, it's revealed to us that this amen is a person, the person who speaks, the words of the amen. Uh, So the Christian's amen our supreme, all-controlling truth is not just a supreme and controlling and absolute truth. It's a supreme, controlling, absolute person, right? It is Christ, and he is the one speaking, and that's why this matters. He, that's why he's called the, the faithful and the true witness, meaning he is someone who testifies to the truth faithfully. And so his words are worthy of your amen, worthy of your faith and your trust, And the other really important thing about this person is it says he is the beginning of God's creation, meaning he is the creator of you and me. The one who made you and formed you, your very origin. The one who defines, therefore, your purpose and your meaning. He is the one who speaks, and that's why this matters. These are the words of of Yahweh, the the creator God, the Lord of heaven and earth, the the amen that started it all and and the amen that will finish it all and transform it all. And he is coming before us and inviting us to submit once again to him. That's why this matters. And when you look at the usage of amen in the Bible, it's used precisely in this relational way. Uh, first, God would speak, and when he emphasizes something in the Bible, a lot of times he would use the, the Hebrew technique of repeating a word twice, and that's the Hebrew way of indicating a superlative, right? Um, instead of saying the holiest, the, the scripture says holy, holy, and in that case, holy, holy, holy. Uh, the one time it's used three times instead of twice. He would say things like, amen, amen, and state the important truth he's trying to communicate, meaning truly, truly, here's what I'm going to tell you. And the other way amen is used in Scripture is when God's people then respond to that amen from God and saying, yes, God, I submit to that, and I acknowledge that is my all-controlling, supreme, absolute truth. Whenever you say amen, realize that's what you mean. God's truth is my absolute, all-controlling truth. That's your amen and my amen. What is Jesus doing here? He's, he's approaching his people as God himself, bringing once again his truth, his amen, and inviting his people, therefore, to hear it and once again submit to it with their smaller amen. That's why this matters. But before he does that, uh, he reveals to them a problem. 
before this can become a healthy relational dynamic between the great amen with a capital A and the little responsive amen with a little A, this problem has to be dealt with. What's the problem? And that's the second point. Take a look at verses 15 to 16. I know your works, meaning I know your way of life. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The first thing that comes out of the mouth of Christ, the Amen, is that he will not keep this group of Christians in Laodicea in his mouth, but spit them out. Uh, Two interpretations of this that go hand in hand that I want to give you. One interpretation is more a bit more historically rooted. The other is more biblically rooted. They're both consistent with what scripture is saying. The historical interpretation is that this refers to a truism during this time. The truism that went like this. Hot water heals. Cold water refreshes. But lukewarm water is useless for either purpose and can serve only as an emetic. And that means something you use to induce vomiting. Is to leave a sickening taste in your mouth so that you would throw up. And the way in which the Christians in Laodicea went about their lives, basing their lives, building their lives on their money and wealth, and placing that as their highest truth, highest uh, amen, while busying themselves in the Christian religion, it left a sickening taste in God's mouth. That's what that means. When you, in your heart of hearts, put your faith in money and with your lips say amen to God, it leaves a sickening taste in God's mouth. That's what this means. This, this is essentially God saying, I cannot tolerate this in my presence. Would you tolerate this? If, if, you're, if you were married to someone who did everything on the outside to show that they love you, but on the inside loved someone more, every gift you receive, it will leave a sour taste in your mouth, wouldn't it? Every Valentine's Day gift, and Valentine's Day card, every word they speak, every affectionate thing they do, if in their heart of hearts they love someone more than you, that will leave a very sour taste in your mouth, wouldn't it? That's what God is saying. Another interpretation that goes hand in hand with this is the one that refers to the other biblical passages in the Bible where God seems to, seems to prefer outright hostility and hatred against God and and the Christian faith, prefer that over phony religiosity within the church. Uh, In 2 Peter 2.21, for example, it says, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. This is referring to people who were a part of the covenant community of God. They were raised in the covenant community. They they were given the sign of the the covenant and uh, growing as a member of the church and receiving all the benefits of the church, worship and fellowship and pastoral counsel and encouragement, 
right? Discipleship. Who then walk away from God or deny uh, God, disobey God. Uh, it's it's kind of like Ishmael who was circumcised as an infant, the, the raised in the covenant community under Abraham, enjoying all the benefits of knowing who the God of Abraham is and knowing his promises. And yet when he was older, he he only shows defiance and 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 unbelief. Um, and, and as long as, I mean, if Ishmael remains that way and still remains a child of Abraham, he's not truly, truly a child of Abraham. Um, there were people like this in, 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 in the church in Laodicea, people who outwardly worship God, mingle with God's people, uh, serve the church with, with diligence, but in their heart of hearts, they, they were not true children of God. Um, because they worship something else on the inside. Right? Their, their lips would say amen to God, but their hearts said amen to something else. That's what lukewarmness is. And here's something else about lukewarmness. It, it, it likes where it is. <laughs> it likes that temperature just fine. It's comfortable. And, and, and by that, I mean, you, it's so easy to become complacent in your lukewarmness. To worship an idol in your heart while self-identifying as a Christian and thinking this is safe. I have a refuge because I have both God and money. And it's probably because I have God that I have money and, and misinterpreting prosperity and wealth to mean the blessings of God. But here, God says in verse 17, very clearly, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. In reality, it's the complete opposite. Uh, Michael Wilcock, he's a theologian, he commented on this saying, the Laodiceans were known as financiers, uh, bankers primarily, but also as physicians and clothing manufacturers. Uh, but ironically, they are here identified as being poor, blind, and naked. In every of self-sufficiency, there was actually bankruptcy. Being a financier made them still very poor in God's eyes. Being physicians, they were still very blind in God's eyes. Being clothing manufacturers, they were very naked in God's eyes. In every area of self-sufficiency, they were actually bankrupt. And that is to say, self-sufficiency itself is a form of bankruptcy in God's eyes. Uh, when you build your self-worth on things that you yourself rely on apart from God, all the things that you cannot take beyond the grave, that self-worth is a bankrupt self-worth. You are not made for things that just die and decay and gets buried with you in the ground. You are made for eternity. You are made for God. But when you have everything in the world, everything that decays and dies and breaks and falls apart, but you don't have God, you, you have nothing. You actually have nothing. And thinking, you know, I'm okay with having God so long as I have these other things. Turns out, God says, that's not having God at all. It's not having God at all. That's what he is 
trying to help them see with this charge of lukewarmness and, and complacency within that lukewarmness. You, you have this poverty being disguised as richness and godlessness disguised as godliness and this outward amen disguised as an inward amen. That's the problem. That's the problem. And it's a very big problem, given that this did not take some false religion to to break into, some false ideology to attack the church, some Jezebel figure to penetrate the church. It it didn't require any of that. Self-sufficiency is what did it. That's the problem. And unless this inner heart problem is addressed, um, no amount of amen we say, we can say amen till we turn blue, will count as true worship. So what is the cure? First of all, uh, when it says, I will spit you out, uh, the more precise translation here is, I'm about to spit you out, meaning uh, this is not something I will tolerate forever. Which implies what? He has been. He's been bearing with the Laodiceans all this time. When it was most difficult to bear with them, he he was bearing with them. And then he approaches them and says in verse 18, I still counsel you. I'm not here to accuse and condemn and cast out and judge and intimidate. I'm here to counsel you. That means I want to restore you and I want to heal you. Counsel you to what? To buy from me, from me, gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. You want to rest in true riches that will not die or decay, will never fail you, then take this from me. The, the thing that will outlast the refining fire. The, the, the day when God will reveal to the world what, what's truly valuable and what, what's imperishable and what will last. And that's his truth, his life, his love, and his kingdom. That's what he means by gold and riches from me. And, and there's an allusion here to Isaiah 55, which you heard in our call to worship today, where the Lord says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. In other words, come to me having dropped all self-sufficiency and self-reliance. Come with nothing in your hands. Well, how do you buy anything then? How can you buy anything without money, without cost? It's only if somebody's paying that cost for you. It's Jesus who's speaking, the Messiah, who will pay that cost for you. And it says in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, Amen. Amen, I say to you. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. <laughs> You'll be raised on the last day. That's gold. That's riches. For my flesh, he says, is true food and my blood is true drink. This is the cure. Him offering himself as the sacrifice on the cross to become our substitute, consuming the cup of God's wrath so that we would taste the cup of blessing. Him saying, truly, truly, I forgive you. Truly, truly, I love you. And truly, truly, I'm here to save you. And for us to say, amen to that is the cure. He heals the lukewarm. He changes the complacent heart. He draws out a genuine amen from the phony religious people that we once were. He can still draw out a true amen. So we can say, like, like we sing in that hymn, let the amen sound from his people again. When we receive him, we receive the cure. Eating and drinking from Christ and eating and drinking of Christ and returning to him. That's what repentance is. That's what verse 19 tells us to do. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Turn back. Come back to me. Come back and come back zealously, not lukewarmly. Come back truly. As truly I am reaching out to you, return truly to me. Then it says you'll be clothed in white garments, meaning you'll be truly forgiven, truly healed, truly restored to your God, your creator, and now your heavenly father. You become an adopted child of God, a status no amount of money on earth can buy for you. Right? No amount of money you pay me will ever make me love you the way I love my own children. That's not something money can buy, right? And it goes the other way around. No amount of money you pay me will make me unlove my children either. And, and it's the same dynamic with our Heavenly Father. We cannot bring something to Him that makes Him just somehow, okay, now I love you. His love is His choice. His love is his gift. It's his amen to us. He draws near to us and feeds us his love and he nourishes us and raises up like, like a little baby up to a point where the child can grow up and say back to the parent, I love you too. In humility, in sacrifice, in this one-way kind of love, he draws near and he restores his people, even those who are about to be spat out, the lukewarm, the complacent, the spiritually dead and dying. He, even them, he would restore, he would counsel, he would heal. No one is ever, ever out of God's reach, out of the reach of his grace. 
How do we know then that we have received this cure or that we are beginning to heal as a result of receiving this? How do we know that we're in the process? It's if you begin to find God to be more sufficient than your self-sufficiency. That's a childlike heart. Try, Try this as an experiment. I hope this succeeds. Uh, go up to my kids, the eight-year-old or the five-year-old, pick one. Go up to Owen or Soli and tell them, hey, if I gave you a billion dollars, a billion dollars, right? or make it a trillion, I don't know if he understands trillion, but if I give you all the money you could have ever, like in the world, will you, will you leave your daddy and mommy like all the money in the world, all the Star Wars Legos in the world, all the rainbow unicorns in the world, all the Hello Kitties. All I ask is that you walk away from your father and your mother. Would they take that? Why not? Because a childlike card is, oh, I hope they don't take that. Because a childlike heart is the heart that says, I'd rather take the sufficiency of my, my parents over my self-sufficiency. That's a childlike heart. What does it mean to be a Christian with a, a truly you know, childlike heart? It's to say, God, your sufficiency for me is better than me being sufficient on my own. That's a childlike heart of a Christian. And, and healing towards in that direction means more and more, more and more you see the true riches is not the one that you pile up for yourself in your bank account, but in seeing how good your Heavenly Father is and how reliable He is, not just in the here and now, but forever and ever and ever. That's believing the gospel or growing into the gospel. That's receiving the cure and being healed as a result of receiving the cure. And it's beautifully summarized for us in verse 20 today. And uh, many people consider Revelation 3.20 to be as good a summary of the gospel as John 3.16 is. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. First of all, why is he even outside the door? Because we kicked him out. We rejected him. But he stands there and he knocks. And it's interesting here. It says anyone who hears, not my knocking, but my voice, and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. Because we've done enough of that, just opening up to things that just knock on our door whether that's money or success or pleasure or power or fame, when they knock on our door, we just opened and let them in. To be a child of God, to be healed, is to open up to this voice only, the Heavenly Father's voice. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It's identifying God's voice and placing him at the top as your all-controlling and supreme truth. 
And if you do that, you will break bread with him. You will fellowship with him. You will be by his side. He will be by your side. And 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 along with that comes this end time hope. Verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, and I also conquered, as I also conquered, and sat down with my father on his throne. Meaning at the end of it all, if you have this presence of Christ in your life, in your heart, even if the earth gives way, not just when the earth quakes, but when the earth disappears, it will be well with you because you are by Jesus' side, and he is by your side. The heart that believes this is the heart that's been cured or is being healed. Seeing God more and more as the all-sufficient, beautiful one with a childlike heart and, and choosing him one day at a time, choosing him and his sufficiency over my self-sufficiency me being good enough, me being strong enough, me being rich enough, me being capable enough. It's to say, no, when I'm not enough, God is, God is enough for me. And he will be enough for me, my children, my family. He is enough. We're going to close in prayer and I'm going to come to the Lord's table. And I want to remind you of what that means. I'm going to explain it a bit further after the prayer. But one thing it means is that you find what you're offered here at this table to be all-sufficient. To be the richest meal you can ever partake of, at least a foretaste of it. If you can say amen to that, or if your heart wants to say amen to that, come to the table Eat with him, eat of him. Okay, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your good news, uh, your son's gospel uh, that reaches us despite our sinfulness, despite our lukewarmness, despite our phony appearances. We thank you that he continues to knock. We thank you that he continues to pursue, that he continues to speak uh, to us. And we pray, Lord, that by your grace that we would be able to respond to his amen, to his truth with our uh, truthful and faithful profession of our faith, saying, Lord, yes, you are all that we need. We may not be great at believing it. We may not be great at showing it, but God, by your help, we want to we wanna grow in it. That's the direction we want to head towards. Would you help us? Would you, would you help us delight in the all-sufficiency of God as we surrender our self-sufficiency? So that, Lord, when you see our hearts, you see our, our truest amen to you and our surrender of all other things, that, that we are choosing, Lord, to, to stand upon your Son as our, as our rock and not anything else. Help us in this and strengthen us in this uh, as we come to your table. Uh, nourish us continually. Uh, strengthen us continually. And 
and transform us more and more uh, into the image of your, your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.